The following message is entitled, True Teachers, Confronting Quitting, Confronting Error, Part 2. This message was given during the morning service on January 15, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3-7, to 7, continuing here for the sake of those on recording. Follow with me this section of the scripture is uh, what we're currently in in this first series. And uh, the first series takes up priority number one, verses one to 20. And the first priority of any local church, as God's word lays out, is he wants true teachers and pure doctrine or Bible teaching in all of his churches, something that has primarily been abandoned by so-called Christianity today. The subpart of this first series in verses 1 to 20 is verses 3 to 7. So let's read those verses after we finish the introduction. We continue now in verses 3 to 7 as I'm laying some foundations for these verses here. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, as I urged you upon, talking to Timothy, Paul is, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. There it is, heretical strange teaching. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction, apostolic instruction, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So you see the contrast between false teaching in verse 3 and the goal in verse 5 of apostolic, our instruction. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. This is apostasy. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. All right, so in your note sheet, those of you that are following the note sheet, after an analysis of the powers of grace, mercy, and peace in verse 2 that are necessary to change lives and churches, Paul charges into the battle that every Bible-believing church must fight. And what is that battle? Write it down under that first opening statement. It, It is the battle for truth. The battle for truth. And unlike what most churches today believe, sadly... Divine power first works through the confrontation of error and the promotion of truth. As I mentioned last Sunday, as you know and as you should know, the gospel begins negatively. Go to John or Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4. John and Jesus go over there just quickly. Matthew chapter 3. The gospel starts negatively. Our society hates negativity. The more it hates negativity, the more it gets negative whining, complaining, and criticizing. In fact, my experience is the people that hate negativity are the ones that are the most negative that I've ever met because all they do is talk about how they hate negativity. Matthew chapter 3. Notice the first word of the first sermon by John the Baptist in verse 2 is what? You can't be saved if you don't think you're a sinner. A sinner that is worthy of eternal hell. This is foundational. This is extremely negative. Christ said that John the Baptist was the greatest man born of women. John the Baptist says you've got to repent of your sins. To repent means to ask Jesus Christ alone to forgive you of your sins. You confess that you're a hell-bound sinner. You know that you deserve hell and that you repent. This is not a message this society will accept anymore. We're post-Christian. And as we'll see from surveys done of Christian young people as well as secular young people in our society... It's not being accepted by Christian young people, and it's not being accepted by young people in general in our culture. They absolutely categorically reject this, which is dooming them to hell. And then you look at chapter 4, Matthew 4. First public sermon by Jesus Christ as he begins his ministry. In verse 17, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, first word out of his mouth, repent. So when American adults and young people say, I'm, this is too negative, I don't like all this stuff about sin and guilt and wrongdoing, we're against all this type of stuff. Well, who are they going against in the Bible? John the Baptist and Jesus. You can't be saved if you reject repentance. 
And of course, the church today is accommodating, as we learned that term last Sunday morning, accommodating to the culture. The culture rejects repentance. So now, of course, the Bible-believing church, so-called in America, says you don't need to repent to be saved. If you don't need to repent to be saved, then what's going on there with those two words with John the Baptist and Jesus Christ? I confronted an IFCA pastor years ago on this. He goes, you're adding works to salvation when you ask people to repent. So I took him to, to Matthew 3 and Matthew 4 and said, what's the deal there? He went like this. Wow, that's a theological answer, isn't it? Just turn your head on me and, and Luke 14 me. You know, just go dead silent. Well, it's plainly obvious. It's plainly obvious that repentance is part of the gospel, right? Extremely negative, though. Now you go back to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. What's he telling? What is he telling Timothy to do? Instruct certain men, verse 3, not to teach strange doctrines. Doctrines are Bible truths. Strange doctrines, as we will study this more in depth, is referring to false teaching. And the evangelical church doesn't want to deal with this today. Most churches believe divine power comes through experience, through miracles, whatever, but not the word of God. And certainly not the negative confrontation of error in verse 3. Once you addict yourself to positive is righteous and negativity is bad, you can't be saved and you certainly can't grow as a Christian. The Bible never condemns negativity. Most of the commands of the Bible are don't, not do. The commands of the Bible are determined by truth versus error, not negative versus positive. You can have negative truth and you can have positive error. You can't define truth by negative versus positive terminology or philosophies. You can only define truth by truth of the Bible versus error that goes against the Bible. That's what's going on. Not to teach strained doctrines. The first issue dealt with for all local churches is something that evangelicalism wants nothing to do with. Confronting error. It's astounding to me. The house of the church can't be clean until the rats are removed. And the house of the church cannot be cleaned until it is then washed and painted. And if one doesn't believe the cleaning agent of God's word is true, then one simply won't clean out God's church with truth. Error just piles up. False teaching just piles up. Friends of Israel last week came out with a newsletter, an organization that we love and support, and listen to what this article said that just came out last week. Quote, according to a recent Gallup survey, the number of Americans who believe in the actual literal word of God is at an all-time low. Conducted May last year, the survey found that only 20% of Americans believe the Bible is God's authoritative word. Now you could say, wow, that's great, 20% of unbelievers. Well, there are dark horses inside of that. When people say they believe the Bible is the word of God, they don't really know what they're saying, as further discussion and insight has. But be that as it may, let's just assume 20% of all Americans believe the Bible is God's word. Um, just a few years before that, it was around 49%. So it's just crashing, just crashing. In fact, he goes on about that. 49% today believe it is God's inspired word, but should not necessarily be taken literally. 49% believe it's God's inspired word, but should not be taken literally. Why would God write a Bible that we don't even have to obey? You see how Americans are messed up. In fact, as I'll talk about in a little while, with most of these opinion surveys statistically, people are trying to give answers they think the researcher wants. So, yeah, oh, do you believe the Bible's, you know, the inspired word of God? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because, you know, that's probably what he wants to hear. Well, do you think that it is something that needs to be taken literally? Well, no. See, it's a contradiction of terms. A significant 29% believe the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book of fables. Digging deeper, we see other disturbing negative global trends regarding the Bible. The situation is no coincidence. It causes great concern when people fail to view the Bible as God's literal word. The article goes on. 
The further people move away from believing the truth in God's word, the more they shape God and his son Jesus into their own images. I've been reading about some famous people in our country who say that they're religious and they believe in God. They just don't go to any formal church. Most Americans think there's, there's no point to sitting in a church like this. I just have my own belief system and I have my own way of following things. Um, just try to do that with any other aspect of life. How about you go to work tomorrow and you just tell your boss, I'm going to do things my way. And in fact, I don't really need to be here to do things my way, so I'm going to stay at home and do my job whether you like it or not. And I'm personally going to because I feel personally that this is the way my job should be run. Anybody think that would work? No. I'll go to the mechanic and say, I don't know how you're going to fix my car, but this is how I feel personally you should fix my car. We actually had a guy in our, in our automotive place like that this past week where I work. He was coming in and trying to instruct Merlin. Merlin is like a mechanic's mechanic. The guy's brilliant concerning mechanical issues. He was trying to instruct uh, Merlin how his car could be, how he wanted his own car fixed. Why are you coming to Merlin? And so Merlin will tap his, the counter with, I'm sitting there, I'm sitting, I didn't have anything to deliver, and he's tapping. It's like, okay, really? Uh, people come in with their personal feelings about something. And that's not how you fix your automobile, right? But when it comes to God, the most important being in the universe, we decide it's going to be based on my personal opinion. Who is God then? The person who bases it on their own opinion. How does that help you when we stand before the God of the universe and who doesn't really care about your opinion or mine? How's that going to work? The article goes on. This is where it gets alarming. A recent Barna, this is a Christian group survey now, a recent Barna group survey of 25,000 teenagers who claim to be Christians around the globe is alarming. It found that among those claiming to be Christians, 61% believe Jesus was crucified. Oh, well, that's great. Really? Listen. Only 50% believe he was resurrected from the dead. So Christians... Christian teenagers believe Jesus Christ died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. That's not Christianity. It's not. Because that means that Jesus wasn't God. Only 50% believe he was resurrected from the dead, and only 44% believe Jesus was God in human form. That's not the God of the Bible. Jesus Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed absolute divinity. Titus chapter 1, Paul wrote that Jesus Christ is God. Barner reported that even among, quote, Bible-engaged Christian teens, those who are really seeking to follow the Bible, more than 25% see Jesus simply as a prophet of God. A widespread failure to believe in the core tenets of the Christian faith, as laid out in the Bible, Friends of Israel said, is becoming apparent in our own house, the Bible-believing church, end quote. You know, what society believes about God in the Bible by itself is irrelevant. We're talking about unbelievers. We wouldn't expect them to believe. But what is devastating, however, is how many professed Christian young people are sitting in our churches, many for years under the teaching of the Word of God, and secretly they simply don't buy the message. As that survey showed, 25% of Christian teens in our churches then are secret apostates. If you only think Jesus is just a prophet of God and not eternal God in human form, you aren't a Christian. That's foundational. 25% of Christian teens who are engaged in the Bible don't believe that. And also realize this, as I was just mentioning, in all poll, polls, many answer questions. This is statistically true. I've read it. Many, in many polls, pollsters, surveyors like Gallup or Barna realize that when they poll individuals for their opinions, most or many people will answer the questions posed based on what they think is the expected answer rather than what they believe to be true for themselves. Statistically, anywhere from 10 to 20% of opinion answers are false. False in that they're not giving their own views. They're giving what they think the pollster wants. So the number of professed Christian teens who reject the message of the Bible while going to Bible-leading churches like ours across this world every Sunday, the number who are Bible-rejecting teenagers is closer to 40 to 50% of all 
professed Christian young people, 40 to 50 percent. The message is not believed anymore. It's rejected. And yet individuals, teenagers or adults, will come into churches like ours and sit under it. Remember what the basic thing that I laid down in the introduction sermon last Sunday was, you can verbally affirm you believe the Bible, but if in your life you reject studying it, reading it, understanding it, and applying it, those four things, all of them are commanded in the scriptures to read, study, understand, and apply. And if you and I aren't doing those four things with the word of God, we have no basis by which we can say we believe the Bible. Our verbal affirmation is not how God judges us. It is how we live our lives. So it no longer matters what the preacher teaches. It's ignored across the land of ours. But even more seriously and eternally damning, is that it no longer matters what the Bible says. It's ignored by massive numbers of professed Christians in the pews each Sunday across the country as they arrogantly sit and say, I reject that because I personally believe different. And what is the basis for your own personal opinion? Myself, that's what they would say. Well, John, is that not what you're doing up here? No. I'm teaching what God's word says. My opinion's irrelevant. When at the end of verse 3, Paul tells Timothy to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, and I say the church is supposed to do that, how is that my opinion? Really, let's think about that. How is it my opinion? It is the great ripoff of the church. When arrogant people who are unbelievers yet come to church and think that they believe the Bible, and they accuse people like me, of just giving my opinion, when all I'm trying to do is to explain the text. It's going to be ignored. Massive numbers of professed people in our churches then no longer believe that the Bible is authoritative while they sit here. And this is perfect proof that the end times, last days before the rapture, Bible-believing, professed body of Christ will be filled with unbelievers pretending to be saved. This is prophecy fulfilled what's going on today. And I've shown you this many times before, so I'm just going to quickly glance at it. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is prediction coming true. Only God predicts the future because only God is in control of time. Nobody else can predict the future. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that's a prophetical marker, later times refers to the last days of the church age. Hebrews 1 tells us that, by the way. Some will fall away from the faith. This is a plurality. Some refers to a plurality. This is in the church, not society. You can't fall away from something you've never believed in. In society, you don't have people believing in the faith. So when it says some will fall away in 1 Timothy 4.1, when it says some will fall away, a plurality is referring to professed believers. They claim to have faith and they're falling away from it, right? If you were to say to me, I fell out of my car, and I said, when did you do that? And you say, during the sermon. And I said, during the sermon? How could it be during the sermon? You were sitting here. Yeah, I fell out of my car. That's crazy. You can't fall out of your car out there when you're sitting here. Unbelievers can't fall away from the faith. They never had it to begin with. And remember, ding, ding, ding. First Timothy is written to who? The church and believers? This is not for society. So a plurality will fall away from the faith. And what are they paying attention to then? Demonic doctrines, deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. This is heresy. And by the way, he actually prophetically predicts the last day's church what the two doctrines will be that professed believers will be obsessed over. And I've taught you this before. They're hypocrites, by the way. You know what a hypocrite? It's a two-faced person in verse 2. A hypocrite is not someone who's weak and sins. Hey, that's all of us, right? A hypocrite is one who says he believes one thing, but actually believes another, promotes one thing, and yet does another. That's hypocrisy. It's hypocrites is two-faced at the same time. I claim to be saved, but I live like the devil. And their conscience are seared. This is why a hypocrite, a false believer who falls away, that's apostasy, falling away, a false believer, they can never be convicted of sin. It says that they're permanently seared in verse 2. Their consciences are, are, are a mess. 
You can't get with preaching like this into the heart of a false believer. Their consciences are seared with a branding iron. That's a metaphor for they've just been hardened. That's probably what's going on here. I damaged this with, in 2008, trying to pry off a, a primer can, purple primer can top. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I was, boom, like lightning, right down here. It took about a month and a half to rehab it, and it was back to normal. And so somehow, either I was kicking or hitting somebody in my sleep on November 20th, and uh, the thing retore, and of course, uh, 16 years later, I'm not the man I was back then in so many ways, and it's just not healing. Well, what's going on here most likely? Scar tissue. Pressing on nerve endings, and it just radiates. Scar tissue builds up. And then it retears in the scar tissue. That's what happens here in verse 2. Seared in their conscience. They're scarred in their conscience. They can't be convicted of sin. It's impossible. Two things then in the last days will occur. Verse 3. Men who will forbid marriage. What does that mean, forbid marriage? The, the idea is not that they will say no one can get married. They're going to alter the rules for marriage. Oh, wow, that's going on. It's been progressive, right? Uh, we talked about this last Sunday that Francis Schaeffer in uh, 1984 said uh, two major areas are being altered. 1984 he said this, and I mentioned this last Sunday if you were here. One is in the area of inerrancy. We're rejecting that the Bible is inerrant. And the other is in the area of divorce and marriage, he said. And he said the rules for divorce and marriage are dying. See, that's right there. Altering the rules for marriage. So the church, first of all, liberalized marriage rules for divorce and marriage. And then went where? Now what's going on today? You can marry your pet pig. And you better get a DNA test on the person that you're dating. You don't know whether they're a man or a woman, right? And what was the supportive marriage law that was just passed? It's now illegal to forbid men and men and women and women to get married as well as LGBTQ. And now I've heard they've added more letters to that. It's like LGBTQ, WXYZ, Boomba, whatever. I can't keep them straight. Altering marriage. Well, what a mere coincidence that is. Next, this is in the church. Abstaining from foods. Food law legalism. Oh, that's not going on at all. Health food, I can only eat this. Everything else is wrong. We've got to make sure we correct how we eat. What an amazing coincidence that that's going on in the church today. Anything but doctrine. Alter the rules for marriage, alter the rules concerning food, which Paul attempts in verse 3 to realign. You can eat anything you want because God has created it to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Anything that is food comes from God. And I had a wise guy tell me years ago, well, God never made a McDonald's quarter pounder. Sure. Yeah, you just want to go ahead and believe that God did not make the ingredients going into that quarter pounder, that they came from some planet and from aliens that landed here on the Starship Enterprise. Just go right ahead and believe that. I've got news for you. Everything in the universe, including what makes a McDonald's quarter pounder, was made by God. So now we're going to have to determine, well, what did God make? But if it's cooked a certain way and has a certain percentage of grease, it's bad to eat. This is crazy heresy is what it is. I don't know how anyone in verse 3 couldn't see that that's come true. Marriage is trashed, and now because we're not following truth and holiness, what are we doing? We're following all these other rules concerning how we're supposed to eat. Isn't that all over the media? Isn't that in the church today? Of course it is. 2 Timothy 4, also we've already looked at. Prophecy fulfilled. It's already taking place. Perfect proof that we're in the last days is we're called in verse 2 to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 2, that's what we're called to do. We're not supposed to stop it. In season doesn't mean in the summer, and out of season mean winter. These are metaphorical terms for in when it's popular and when it's not popular to do it. And then he describes how preaching the word is going to be at the last days unpopular. For the time will come, not in Paul's day, but in the future, verse 3, when you will find professed, they as professed believers. This, these two epistles are written to the church. They will not endure. They can't take it. I can't take this. I will not listen to this anymore. Sound doctrine. Always comes back to correct teaching. 
the word agiano. It means sound doctrine, means healthy. Uh, the root of it is where we get our word hygiene. And the idea is pure, clean, holy doctrine. And instead, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own lusts, desires, epithumia, lusts. And here it is, verse 4, they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss, make-believe. And so anyone who wants to teach the word has to endure hardship in verse 5 because people aren't going to listen to it. They simply can't be bothered. This is the problem we're facing. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As we learned last Sunday in the first sermon that it was introducing this passage then, just because the Bible teaches something plainfully, plainly and truthfully, that doesn't mean someone sitting in a church anywhere on this planet believes that it's true. Even if they profess adamantly with their mouths that they believe it, it doesn't mean that they do. So how do I know whether I'm a true believer or not? Well, certainly how we receive Christ as Lord and Savior certainly determines whether we're converted or not, but I'll give you five biblical marks of a false, fake Christian. I've given you enough lines there under that introduction. If you want to know five major marks of someone who's sitting in the pews and says, I believe Jesus Christ is just a prophet, but I claim to be born again. How does that happen? Five reasons. Five marks of a fake believer. Number one, secret unbelief in the Bible. Secret unbelief. In the Bible, hearing the word taught, yet not believing the message in the mind, believing heresy instead. You just saw that in 1 Timothy 4, falling away from the truth. Secret unbelief in the Bible. Matthew 13 calls this the tares, the weeds hidden among the wheat, where they look like they're believers, they talk like they're believers, but they aren't believers. Secret unbelief in the Bible. There are a host of people in the last days, the Bible says, that will have no problem for years sitting in Bible-believing churches who give the basic affirmation verbally that they believe in the Word of God, but in their minds they reject it. Secret unbelief in the Bible. Number two, second mark of a false last days believer, untransformed by truth. Untransformed by truth. Hardened. Hardened. Nothing getting through. We just talked about that in 1 Timothy 4 again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. This is a mark of apostasy in any age. Untransformed by truth. Hearing the word. It just deflects off. Just deflects. Never being convicted. Never transformed internally. There's a lot of crazy people out there, and we listen to crazy people at work, maybe neighbors, family, friends. They'll say crazy stuff, right? And what, what do you do with crazy stuff when stuff is said to you that's crazy? You just, it just bounces off you. That's nuts. I'm not believing that. That's what's going on in the church today. People who hear stuff from the Word of God being taught in churches, and it just deflects off because it's craziness. Verse 12, Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away. What is the mark of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away? That's apostume. That's apostasy, falling away. This is a fake person. Unbelieving means they're not saved. Encourage one another day after day, verse 13, as long as it is still day today, so that none of you will be, here it is, scleruna, sclerosis, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, calloused. Untransformed by truth because the heart internally is calloused. Number three, third mark of a last day's false Christian is mysticism. And Francis Schaeffer read extensively about that. Uh, remember the WGN radio show that I talked about and how the person believes, well, I just believe that Jesus is the person we're to follow because of the inner voice, the inner voice, but I reject the word of God. That's mysticism. What is mysticism? If you want to write it down, it's belief based on personal feelings and happiness. Personal feelings and happiness. That's what mysticism is. This, this shipwrecks everything in the Bible. The number one reason I've had people oppose me over the years that have attended here, and they said, well, I don't agree with what you just taught up there. And I said, okay, well, where was I biblically wrong? 100% of the time, this is the answer I'll get, rather than, oh, well, I studied this issue, and here it is. Here's 100% of the time. I simply don't believe that way. That's mysticism. Mysticism. It rules the day in the church. Belief based on personal feelings and happiness. And uh, that's what Schaefer 
talked about that I read last week. Number four, fourth mark of a fake believer, the Bible's fundamentally unimportant. Hearing the word taught, finding no practical reason for why it should ever be obeyed. Hearing the word taught, finding no practical reason why it should ever be obeyed. I've got more important things in my life to do than read a dusty old book and try to incorporate it into my life. That's the basic attitude of most Americans and many that are in Bible-believing churches. The idea basically is the Bible may be God's word, but it is practically irrelevant to me. And how do we know this is rampant in our churches, that, that the vast majority of professed believers believe the Bible is unimportant? Ignorance, right? Ignorance, that's how you know. It just reveals itself in any church, including ours. Massive Bible ignorance. How can a person be saved for so many years and not understand the basic tenets of the Bible? How can a person be saved for years and not know how to study the Bible? How can a person be saved for decades and not be able to look at a verse and understand what it means if they attempted to study it? This is a terrible indictment on the church. The Bible is unimportant because it's obviously not studied during the week. And number five... No belief that one is a terrible sinner. No belief that one is a terrible sinner. Lack of conviction of sin, in other words. Hearing the word of God taught, but never seeing oneself as a terrible sinner. This is the first fundamental when one is submitting to the word of God. The first evidence that one is submitting to the word of God, the first fundamental is I am overwhelmed with massive fear and guilt over my sin. So number one, secret unbelief in the Bible, sitting in our pews. Number two, untransformed by truth, sitting in our pews. Number three, massive personal arrogant mysticism. I believe, therefore, it's true, rather than it is true, therefore, I believe. That's mysticism. I believe, I believe therefore, it's true, rather than this is truth, now I believe it. Completely inverting how the Christian life is to be lived, mysticism. Number four, the Bible is fundamentally unimportant. It's irrelevant. It's boring. I'm not spending time in it. I've got more things to do with my life. And number five, no belief that one is a terrible sinner. If you don't spend time in the Bible, how could you ever be convicted of sin? A person marked by any of these can't possibly be saved. Okay? It's just not possible. The Spirit of God gives a hunger for the Word and a conviction of sin. This is basic Christianity. Basic Christianity. So back to 1 Timothy 1. This is the war that's going on. This is the war that should be going on today. He's confronting instruction in verse 3. He's commanding Timothy, you need to do certain things in there that you're not doing. As we'll see, the word urge means to beg. He's begging Timothy to do something he's not willing to do. 1 Timothy 1 couldn't be more important than it is today in the last day's church. He's starting right out teaching us two horrific things. That all churches and believers, especially in the last days, need to hear. Number one in your note sheet. Before false teaching can be de defeated, quitting must be confronted among true teachers and believers. Quitting must be confronted among true teachers and believers. Before false teaching can be defeated. He's confronting Timothy about quitting. He says, I beg you to remain. If I'm begging somebody to remain, what do they want to do? Quit. You think, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, this, this is messed up, John. You could say, it is always the heretics that quit. No, actually, they, they don't. Now, on an individual basis, if we stick it out, they leave. And we've had that here. You stay, to the, stay in regards to the truth. You remain in the truth in this church. Somebody who's wicked, they'll eventually leave. That's not what's going on out there. What's going on out there is piles of false believers and the true teachers and Christians are leaving. So under this number one, it is the pattern of true believers and godly teachers to want to quit. It is the pattern of true believers and godly teachers to want to quit. That's what's going on with Timothy. Is Timothy a true pastor? Yes. Did Paul struggle with this? Yeah, back in 2 Corinthians 4. He was so depressed, he didn't even want to continue on anymore. Why? Why is it that at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, everyone was deserting him who were true believers and leaders? Here's the reason why this happens. As error grows in the church, and there are fewer good teachers, they become discouraged and want to give up. That's why this happens. As error grows, hypocrisy grows, false teaching grows in the church, in churches, 
Bible schools, mission organizations, as they just proliferate, the few remnant that are true teachers and Christians get overwhelmed and surrounded and they just want to quit. One of the things I've read extensively in our special forces is in the training of Rangers and Navy SEALs, they have to be trained into a mindset that no matter what, they stand their ground. The natural tendency is for a soldier who is not trained repeatedly to stand in the face of danger is to run. When we fought the war in Iraq, the Iraqi soldiers decades ago dropped their guns and ran. They weren't trained to stand the ground against the awesome force of the American army. Whether outgunned, outmaneuvered, or outnumbered, special forces have to go through training that you are to stand your ground and maintain your post even if you die. That's something not taught in the church today. Lack of perseverance. Write it down. When you're surrounded by hypocrisy and false Christians, in the organization that we were saved and came into that we thought would be the real deal. And we're surrounded in the church today in America by thousands and thousands of fakes. The true believers are overwhelmed to want to drop their gun and run. That word remain in verse 3 is extremely important. It's one of the three keys to what Paul's telling Timothy. Stand your ground. And years ago, many years ago, a person in this church said, well, if our church closes, I'll just go to another one. It's no big deal. That was a statement that was said to me. It's no big deal. Really? It's kind of like, you know, a restaurant closes. You feel a little sadness for how many seconds? Maybe 10? You pull up to a restaurant maybe today. Go to Whiting. There's one you want to go to or something. You go, oh, they're closed. Oh, that feels kind of bad. Okay, where should we go now? Just a restaurant. So we come to Eastside Bible Church some Sunday morning and there's a sign on the door, this church is closed forever. Oh, okay, I'll go somewhere else. Where is there a Bible-believing church within 10 miles of this church? I don't know any. Is this not worth fighting for? Should we remain? Well, there are biblical reasons for leaving. Yeah, there are actually five biblical reasons for leaving a church. Five biblical reasons. We'll get them next time, next Sunday. Our church is not fulfilling any of those five reasons. It's kind of giving you the end of the movie. Because <laughs> okay. if we were fulfilling any of those five reasons, I would be the first out the door. So... The remnant is shrinking of true believers, manifesting transformation, believe the word of God privately as well as publicly, seeking to serve with their gifts, walking with Christ. They're being surrounded by fakes in our churches everywhere, and the true believers want to quit, and Satan empowers the fakes to stay put. This is extremely negative in verse 3. We don't like negativity. Sorry, take it up with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're too negative. Blasphemy. I beg you, verse 3, negativity. Remain, negativity. Confront the false teachers. Negativity. Why does he have to do that? Because it's got to be done everywhere. Quitting is the modus operandi of the remnant godly believer, not the fake. They remain, we want out. I have had it. No more dealing with fakes. And in the old days, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was always 10 more churches to go to that you could just dump and run the one that's having a war going on and go to somewhere else. There aren't any left anymore. Sam and I were talking about the fact that there is nothing in this area. IFCA churches are warring for survival on every front being taken over by false believers. 
He's joining a church, a Baptist church down there. You know what he said to me? He said to me on Friday, and I quote, I see real Christians in this church. That's what he said to me. His church ran him out. And then gave him a farewell celebration. Well, that's the way to do it, right? It's like divorcing your wife then throwing a party for her. So why do you think that there's the real deal down there? We've talked about that. A lot of it has to do with Catholicism. Uh, most of the converts of, in Bible-believing churches, in Cook County, for instance, in our Bible-believing churches, and in DuPage County are former Catholics, and they just drag all their legalism and false Christianity in with them many times. doesn't mean a Catholic can't be saved, but there's a mess going on that just really taps down Bible-believing churches by former Catholics. You have, to, you have to absolutely unload every single aspect of your demonic Catholicism when you get converted and never return to any of it. And most professed believers won't do that. They come in and they think the pastor is a priest. That you blindly do whatever he says, just like in Catholicism. They come in and they believe, just like when they were Catholics, that you come sit, listen, and leave. That's a fundamental of Catholicism. And Catholicism says you obey human leaders by majority opinion, not the word of God. It's a terrible, dire situation we're in. It's the last days. Good teachers will be tempted to quit, and bad teachers will multiply and persevere. This is the way it is. 2 Timothy 4, as we just read, said that they're going to pile up. False teachers piling up. They can only pile up in our churches as the good ones leave. There has to be a vacuum and a removal of good teachers for the false teachers to pile up. It means to heap up in 2 Timothy 4.3 that the false teachers in the last days will be heaped up. They're growing because the good teachers are run out by the membership or they quit themselves because they've had it. In your note sheet then, this final principle, quitting in the face of persecution and suffering is the great temptation of all godly Christians. Quitting in the face of persecution and suffering is a great temptation of all godly Christians and, of course, led the way by leaders, sad to say. Quitting in the face of persecution and suffering is a great temptation of all godly Christians and leaders. You see, if you've got that backwards, you're going to be confused. You're going to say, why am I so tempted always to quit? Because you're a true believer. And the more you see that you have to stand for what's right in local churches, you're going to be surrounded by people that are fakes. It's going to discourage you. But a fake in a church has growing company. And you can act like a fake and be happier in churches because there's so many that are like you. You're swimming up against the wrong direction when you're in the last day's church. In Acts chapter 2, when the church was new, everybody was saved. They were growing. They were fellowshipping. They were praying. There was none of this massive plague of apostasy. It didn't take long for Satan to infiltrate churches in the New Testament, for sure. But now we've got 2,000 years of demonic invasion within the church, and people get saved. They come into churches. I thought everything was going to be different. I thought people wouldn't be like this. And we discovered that the, inside the hallowed grounds of the body of Christ professed, churches were piling up with false leaders and false Christians. And the true believers want to quit. True believers want to quit. What did Jeremiah want to do? Why was he called the crying prophet? Why is one of the books he wrote called Lamentations? Did Jeremiah want to quit? Did Isaiah want to quit? Mm -hmm. God had to rebuke Jeremiah and say, you for your cause are not to go down and be like them. That's what he said. God said to him. Don't you become like them. Who is he referring to? The Israelites who had apostatized. This is the mark of someone who is a true believer. The temptation to quit and run because of false Christianity all around us. It's why a true believer struggles so much with quitting in the church, but then perseveres in the job out there. Because out there in the jobs, we realize they're wrecks and they're unbelievers and they're not saved. So why should we be tempted to quit when we're, we know we're going to be around unbelievers, right? That's normal. But in the church... 
We expect it different, and we don't see it. Next Sunday, we'll fill it in just for tonight, for now, and, and go to it next Sunday. A second major issue going on that this epistle is dealing with. Number one, two horrific things that he's dealing with is that he has to confront Quinny. And then number two, fill it in and we'll pick it up at the bottom of your note sheet. For truth to prevail, false teaching must be exposed and removed from every single Bible-believing ministry. It must be exposed and removed from every Bible-believing ministry. That would include all the arms, four arms of the church. Do you know what the four arms of the church are today? Churches. Number two, Bible schools. Number three, mission organizations. And number four, media, music. Let's take that last one. Christian music, Christian media. What an absolute wreck. You can sing and teach anything in contemporary music today and still be claimed to be a Christian. Try to find a Christian website you can trust. It's the wild, wild west out there. It's all tolerated. As long as they put the name Christian to it, it's okay if you sing it. It's okay if you look on the web. Nothing's being exposed. Nothing's being removed. For truth to prevail, false teaching must be exposed and removed from every single Bible-believing church. Next Sunday morning, We'll read from the complete works of Schaefer once again. I'll read a quote about this. He said in 1984, if we don't get these people out of the church, it's over. It's absolutely over. Well, Francis Schaefer, you're receiving a reward in heaven. It's over. I don't know anywhere where heresy and false teaching is being removed in organizations, including the IFCA. I just don't see where it's happening. It's not being removed in music. It's not being removed in Bible colleges. It's not being removed in mission organizations. The worst abominations and beliefs are not exposed and not being removed. And this is what Paul is confronting here. He says, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach. They have to be stopped in their tracks. To not teach means to remove them Because in verse 6, they are apostates and heretics. They've turned aside, apostasy. This desire to fight is lost. This desire to do battle is lost. You can understand why the Ukrainians are winning. They're throwing 60-year-olds now in Russia into mandatory drafting. And There's rebellion and rioting going on in various parts of Russia because they don't understand why they're losing all their young people to this war. And they're just just like fodder. They're just being thrown into the battle. No training. These poor Russian young men and older men, they're just no training. They're just being slaughtered. They're piling up, being thrown into refrigeration cars and then just freighted back to Russia because Ukraine is trying to expose and get rid of the invader. The Russians simply don't care about the war, the soldiers. And so thousands and thousands of Russian citizens, young people, are fleeing the country. When the church is not willing to expose and remove the error, We're like Russian soldiers. We're just here because we have to be here, but we don't care about the war. Only the very few in the church today cry out to expose truth as truth and error as error in the church. And we pay a very great price for that. And who wants to pay a price for something like a Russian soldier we simply don't care about? Ukrainian soldiers care because they're fighting for their homeland and their very lives and families. I'm not saying they're innocent choir boys. Ukrainians are pagans just like the Russians, but they have a reason to fight. Church today has lost the reason to fight because we simply don't care. So evil piles up. In the beginning, negative commands of verses 3 to 7 are ignored. And in our own lives, we don't see the need to war against sin among the lost through evangelism, and we don't see the point of standing for truth and exposing error in the church today. 
So Christian music is corrupted. And missions are corrupted. And Bible schools and seminaries have men that are apostates and heretics running them in their faculties and in their presidencies and in their executive branches and in churches. Individuals who have no problem coming in and signing a doctrinal statement as pastor teachers, lying and signing the doctrinal statement and teaching whatever they want. We can't win the war if it's not going to be exposed and removed. Does the Bible really tell us in other places to expose and remove false teaching? Yeah, there's a big thick paper I've written on that back table, one of the holders, about the doctrine of separation and how it's a mandate. It is the guardian doctrine of Christianity is that you promote truth and expose and remove error. There's dozens of passages in the Old and New Testament that teach this. Remember Jehoshaphat hanging around Ahab? Almost cost him his life. He never should have done that. And so it goes throughout the Bible that we're supposed to separate from evil, but it doesn't happen. And I have itemized and taught through that paper all the major passages in the New Testament that teach about separation. And how do you know when do you separate? And what are fundamentals of the faith in the Bible? And how do we know when we should grant some room, wiggle room? And when should we actually take a stand? And all that's in that paper. But Christians don't study these things. They're not interested in that. If church goes bad, the good ones quit. The bad ones usually stay put. And this is how liberalism takes over denominations and how churches fall. J. Gresham Macon, back in the 1930s, was a voice crying in the wilderness of the Presbyterian Church. And he was crying out to his fellow theologians that apostasy and liberalism had invaded Presbyterianism. And he looked around back in the 30s for someone who would stand with him. And he brilliantly exegeted in writing the reasons why we have to war against this evil within Presbyterianism. You know what the Presbyterian church did to him back in 1932? They defrocked him and kicked him out. And a host of his colleagues said, well, we'll try to stay in and be light in the darkness. Rather than separating from such evil. Where's Presbyterianism today? I've got LGBTQ pastors now because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's what the culture teaches and what the culture says this we will do. Thank you, Father, for your word. We need to believe and affirm. Help us to do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.